0: You're listening to Black Op Radio.
1: When uh, when we were in uh, San Diego earlier uh, this week, uh, making headlines everywhere, uh, and uh, the next day uh, we got the San Diego Nixon, their daily paper down there, the San Diego Reagan, that's Herbert Klein's newspaper. But it's all right, he's not a Social Democrat. Anyway, here is a report here, and it says uh, Coronado, that's the dateline where all the admirals are retired. A uh, witness to the assassination of President Kennedy said here today she has no serious doubts that Lee Harvey Oswald fired the shots which killed the president. However, Mrs. Jean Richardson, who was on the fourth floor of the Texas School Book Depository when Kennedy was shot, said she is not satisfied with the Warren Commission report. Well, we asked her to come up and this is vicki adams richardson with us now and uh, uh she came up from uh, san diego to uh tell us a little bit about uh, uh dallas uh, that day and uh, uh subsequent uh, uh questioning by uh, commission council so well, we can jump in most anywhere in that story ever since
2: can we start with where uh, vicky was when the shots yeah that will be a good start all uh, right miss miss richardson i show you here
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. A crop photograph, of course. This is the book depository building, as you know. It'll have a like, better like that, but of yeah. course now you can't see it. That's I good. To, I can you see it. can see That's it fine. Yeah. Of course, this is the sixth floor window from which the commission said all the shots were fired. And then where <coughs> were you?
3: I was located in this window here on the fourth floor floors under Oswald.
2: And the uh, one window over to the right as you face out.
3: Right, in the second set
2: of windows. Okay, and uh, where did you think the, you were at the window. Yes, sir. Where did you think the shots came from, the sound came from?
3: Well, the sound uh, came from approximately this area in through here. Now, as I explained in my testimony, that it, that could have been report, but this is going along with the Warren Commission's Yeah, but uh, you said,
2: you you testified, right, that it sounded as if it came from the right right below rather than the left above. I think that was your exact Mm -hmm. quote. And you were questioned by... uh, David Bellum. Yeah, but before you went before the commission, you were questioned by what? A lot of uh, various...
3: A number of people. I was questioned by the uh, Dallas police. I was questioned by the FBI. I was questioned by the Secret Service. I was also questioned by the special services of the Dallas Police Department. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and what happened after you heard the shots?
3: Immediately after I heard the shots, I ran out to the storeroom on the first floor. Uh, you have to understand somewhat a little about the Texas School Book Depository building. This is a converted warehouse, and the four, for, the first four, four floors have been remodeled uh, in order to accommodate offices for various publishers. Now, I worked for a particular publisher. I did not work for the Texas School Book Depository. Mm-hmm. After that, I ran out to the storeroom, as I said, that was on the fourth floor, and ran down the back steps and out into the street.
2: Right. Now, of course, the commission said that after Oswald fired from the front window of the sixth floor, he went to the back of the building, placed his rifle there, uh, hit it or threw it uh, around in some boxes and camouflaged just a bit, and then went down the stairs, and he was next seen... According to Roy Truly, the uh, supervisor of the, of the building, he said when he spoke to CBS in a, in a taped interview that, it was, uh, that he was standing outside of the Book Depository building. Within a matter of seconds, he said, I ran up with a police officer, and there on the second floor we saw Oswald in the lunchroom. So you, would ha- you saw Oswald on the stairs, right? No. No.
3: No, I didn't see Oswald. How did
2: Oswald get from the sixth floor to the second floor lunchroom? without being seen by you?
3: Well, that's a very good point. <laughs> Is and, it
2: possible, do you think?
3: Well, I suppose if uh, if he was running. Now, according to the uh, Warren Commission report, Oswald was not running. I was running. I was uh, one set of windows over. I had two floors on him. I did not have to put away a rifle. And, uh, you know walked down, because when Baker and Truly encountered Oswald on the second floor.
2: Baker's the police officer who went up the stairs with right. Uh, Truly.
3: Right, with Truly, They said that Mr. Oswald was not out of breath. Mm-hmm. Now, this would indicate that he had walked down.
2: That's what the commission said, yeah.
3: Right, but I did not encounter him. Now, in order for somebody to walk down those stairs, there are very heavy wooden doors that have to be opened these, I, I explained to you, it's a, uh, it's a remodeled warehouse, and these doors are approximately that thick, which gives you an idea of the, of the type of door that you have mm-hmm. to open, and it swings shut, which means that you can hear somebody. They're L-shaped stairs, and as you come down, obviously with creaky old stairs, I could hear somebody clomping down or even walking down from another floor. What'd you hear? Nothing.
2: Well, uh, the commission timed uh, truly running up the stairs and they try and Baker jumping off his motorcycle and running into the building and they timed some uh, FBI men I think including the, I think the Chief Justice himself went through the ritual of going from the window going down to see how quickly he could make it. Did they ever time you?
3: No sir and this is of course a very strong uh, point that I feel they should have, and I mentioned this to them, and they refused to.
2: You mentioned to the commission? Yes, sir. Well, it doesn't appear in your testimony, no, in the sir. printed version.
3: Prior to testimony in Dallas, uh, I discussed my participation in the case with Mr. David Bellin, an attorney for the Warren Commission, and uh, uh, I mentioned this to him that I, th- I thought that I should be timed, and he just dismissed it as being Not necessary. He said, we timed Baker, we timed Truly, we have the testimony from the three colored fellows who were on the fifth floor underneath Oswald. We see absolutely no necessity for timing you.
2: Well, you weren't alone, were you? No, sir. Who was at the window with you?
3: There were four other people, three other people at the window with me. I made the fourth person. But at the point at which I started running, I started running with a young lady named Miss Sandra Stiles at the time. And uh, Miss Stiles also testified to the... uh, FBI and to the Secret Service.
2: You mean she was questioned by them?
3: Yes, she was. But she was never invited by the Warren Commission to testify. However, she ran out with me.
2: Did you tell that to the Commission, that she ran down the stairs with you?
3: Yes, I did, and this was in my FBI testimony, which they had in their possession. And they never called her? No, and I asked them why. And they told me that it was was not really relevant, that I gave them the best testimony.
2: Which they then disregarded.
3: Obviously. In fact, in their in their s- summary of the whole thing, that if uh, such and such a thing happened, and if so and so ran up certain stairs, then obviously my testimony was inaccurate. You know, I'm just because
2: Oswald got down the lady. stairs. Yeah. 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 Well, it, I I just want, don't you want to feel want you to feel badly. Let me tell you what the commission did to almost everybody who disagreed with the commission's <sighs> preconceived conclusion. I'm reading from this book. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, These are quotes now about how the commission handled the testimony. The commission, quote, could not accept important elements of Deputy Sheriff Craig's testimony, close quote. Mrs. Randall was, quote, mistaken, close quote. Governor Connolly, quote, probably was mistaken, close quote. Shot, too, but mistaken. He was probably shot also, yes. (laughs) Frazier, quote, could easily have been mistaken, close quote. Daniel's testimony, quote, Merritt's little credence. Rowland was, quote, prone to exaggerate, and there were, quote, serious doubts about his credibility. Whaley's memory was, quote, inaccurate, and he was, quote, somewhat imprecise, close quote, and, quote, was in error. Cantor, quote, was preoccupied, close quote, and, quote, probably did not see Ruby at the Parkland Hospital, close quote. Mrs. Tice was in error. Wade, that's the district attorney, Uh, "...lacked a thorough grasp of the evidence and made a number of errors. Weitzman was, quote, incorrect. Mrs. Helmick's, quote, reliability was undermined. Ruby and Shanklin were were misquoted. The doctors at Parkland Hospital were misquoted, and they were also in error. Mrs. Connolly's testimony, quote, did not preclude a possibility, close quote, that it actually did preclude. Mrs. Kennedy's testimony about the wounds in the president uh, was deleted." Mrs. Rich was not even mentioned in the report, and Mrs. Clemens' existence was tacitly denied. Well, this is how the Commission dealt with testimony which was uh, inconvenient, and your testimony was very inconvenient, because if your estimate of what took place is accurate, then Oswald could not have gotten from the sixth floor to the second floor, and he was found on the second floor, and if he couldn't get there from the sixth floor, and there's only one set of stairs, right? Right. And the elevators were not working. Right.
3: Well, at uh, least we're not they were working not at operating. that time.
2: Uh, yeah, according to all the testimony, the officer and truly. So if Oswald could not didn't get down those stairs when you were there, and if your testimony is accurate about when you were there.
3: Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, of
2: course wanna, you must be wrong because gotta, Oswald so was away a lone <laughs> assassin. for uh, a minute and then I want
1: to talk about Jack
0: Ruby. We can't. <laughs>
1: What uh, You know, uh, what's the experience with uh, the commission lawyer? What's his name, Bellin? David yes, Bellin? Sir. Yes, sir. And he went a- after you talked to the cops and uh, the FBI and uh, mm-hmm. this division of labor we have, at, when, when you finally got, th- what was that like? I mean, uh, I want to make this clear to the audience. She didn't see the commission, saw so the commission attorney, commission counsel.
3: Yes, right. Yeah,
1: What
2: was that like? Well, you know, that's, excuse me, the, the, the commission said it took the testimony of 552 people. Yeah. Let's so use the term very loosely. Ninety-four people actually testified before one commission member or more, and not one ever testified before all seven. The whole seven members never met to take testimony. They met at the beginning to have their picture taken, and at the end to give the book to President Johnson. You know, he held the report in his hand, and he said, the whole world was looking at him, he said, it's very heavy. President Johnson's analysis of the Warren report. <laughs> but uh, Ricky testified before one of the commission lawyers, which is yeah. called testimony before the commission, to use their term. Oh, all right. Uh, what was that like with him?
3: Well, I received a letter dated March 30th from Washington advising me that uh, I would be expected to talk with a couple of attorneys in Dallas. And later on, I received a telephone call indicating to me that it would be at the Federal Building in Dallas and that I was to appear there at 2 o'clock on a specific day in April, which I did. Well, I was rather surprised when I walked in for a number of reasons. First of all, there was no press there at all. And as a matter of fact, the press coverage on that day was um, in the Dallas Morning News the following morning, page 14, a small article saying who testified, and that was it.
2: Not what they said? No, just who testified. Because the press wasn't allowed in. No, they weren't. You know, the commission says in its report that uh, each of the witnesses had the right to testify either publicly or behind closed doors, and just one troublemaker <laughs> insisted on, on testifying before the public, yes, thank you, <laughs> and he did it twice as a matter of fact, but um, did you know that you had the right to ask for a public hearing?
3: Uh, no sir. As uh a young person, for one thing, and not having very much experience with the law, fortunately, I didn't know many of my rights at all at that time and was not advised of the fact that I could have an open hearing, although I was advised of the fact in a letter that we could be represented by counsel, too. But we did not know that we could have an open hearing. I didn't even know what, what it was, what was gonna go on at all to start with. I walked in that day, and Mr. Bellin was approximately 20 minutes late, which uh, was all right, except that I was very nervous. And uh, he came in, sat down, introduced himself, introduced me to the court stenographer, propped the speed up on the desk, and he said, all right, let's talk. So we talked. And he asked me where I was, what I was doing, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, said to me during the course of my conversation, now, Miss Adams, don't you think that you could possibly be mistaken as to your time? And I said, yes, sir. There is certainly a strong possibility that I could be mistaken. However, just to uh, sort of find out how many minutes it took me, for example, or my position, I said, why don't we use a stopwatch? I said, you've clocked everybody else, why not clock me? And of course then, no, we can't clock you. Well, that, that went on. And I also mentioned Sandra Stiles who had been with me. That was of no avail. I also mentioned a woman named Elsie Dorman who was on the fourth floor who saw these three colored fellas come down sometime after I did, which again was not mentioned in the Warren report, nor was Elsie Dorman called as a witness. And we discussed a a few other miscellaneous points, and then the the formal testimony began. Well,
2: during this whole time, no record was made, is that right? That's right. Because in your published transcript of your testimony, there's no indication that you asked to be timed by a clock.
3: That's right. This was not mentioned um, during the testimony. Any oath administered or anything? Yes, the, the oath was administered at the time of testimony, but not during the original discussion.
2: I used the Warren report instead of In other White
3: words, was. they were trying to help me in my thinking huh. say what they want me to say, <laughs> quite obviously. You know, they were trying to guide my thinking that, yes, sir, perhaps it did take me five minutes instead of between 30 and one minute, 30 seconds and one minute. But I wasn't about to do it. So I didn't mention the stopwatch again during the... Uh, I told them that, that time approximation would be difficult without a stopwatch when they asked me certain questions. Mm-hmm. But I did not mention the fact that I do think you should you should tie me again.
2: You you told them something quite interesting, uh, I think, uh, in terms of a man that you saw standing outside of the book depository building. Yes, sir. Would you tell us that?
3: Well, could we have that chart again, and I can indicate to the, uh, the audience, picture. more or less where I went? Yes, picture. Do
2: you want this uh, pointer? Yeah.
3: When I left the building, now the stairs are way in the back here. You can't, there's there's no way that you can figure out where they are. But at any rate, I finally ended up uh, approximately over here, which is where a loading dock is. I left the building from a dock here. Now, before I get into who I thought I saw, et cetera, et cetera, I'll discuss what happened here. Now, there are two witnesses, according to the Warren report, who said that during the first five minutes of the assassination, they were watching the rear of the building and they saw no one enter or leave. These two witnesses I saw who were standing here, they were talking together and were not even looking at the building. One was a Dallas policeman and the other one was a man in a suit. Now who they were, I don't know. But at any rate, I proceeded back this way and around the building and approximately to this location here where I was encountered by a policeman.
2: Why did you go this way?
3: Uh, because that's where the majority of the people were. In this direction? They were running over that way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I wanted to find out where the action was. <laughs> so this policeman here told me to get back to the building, get back to the front of the building, which is what I I did. So I continued uh, running down this way and stopped approximately here, which is almost the uh, front of the Texas School Book Depository building. While I was there, I encountered one of uh, my fellow employees named Mrs. Avery Davis, who is no longer with the same company. And uh, I just, said, well, you know, what in the world's going on here? I I was confused myself. I didn't know for sure if the president had been shot or or what was going on. So I said, well, I'm going to listen to the radio on a uh, police motorcycle, which was approximately in this position here, a three-wheeler. So I listened to that, and there were reports that said something about The President has been shot, Governor Connolly has been shot, Vice President Johnson has been shot, everybody in the world was shot on that corner. And I wanted to find out what was going on. And then they said that there were, uh, the shots were either from the second or the fifth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Well, that made me a little nervous because I had been on the fourth floor at an open window. So um, I was debating just at that point about whether or not to go back into the building. And right here on this corner, There was a man standing there who was dressed in a suit and at the time had on a hat. And I spoke with Mrs. Davis and I said, "Uh, Who is that man? Because he was he was asking questions as if he were a police officer. You know, he acted like he knew what was going on. And people then weren't acting like anybody knew what was going on. And so I I said, I wonder what he's doing there. Maybe he's a reporter. I said, maybe he's with the Secret Service. I wonder I wonder what he's doing. But it was, it was very relevant, and this is in my testimony, but it's never mentioned in the Warren report. Now, the question is, who was that man? And uh, later on, because he made such a strong impression on my mind, his face stuck with me in my memory. And then several days later, I saw on television a man that looked very similar to him. And Who, who was that man? That man was Ruby.
2: And you told that?
3: Yes, I told. This is in my testimony.
2: Yes, I know. And um, were you told by anyone that Ruby was or was not there?
3: Yes, sir. I was told by a police officer who uh, had come over to question me that Ruby could not possibly have been in the vicinity at that time, that they had numerous witnesses attesting to the fact that he was in the Dallas Morning News building at that time. getting some advertisement for his clubs. Well,
2: aside from the fact that, of course, it's improper to tell a witness that what they saw they did not see because they couldn't have, there is not a single witness who ever said Ruby was at the Dallas Morning News at the time the shots were fired. There were those who placed them there 15 minutes before and 15 minutes afterwards. But you, of course, you know how close the Dallas Morning News is. It's It's about two blocks away. Two blocks away from the book depository book. But there is a photo. There is a photo. (laughs) Right? My God. Yeah. (laughs) Of that corner... Of that corner taken at about the same time you're talking about. Uh, And there is a photo in the warren... This is the way it was taken. Yeah. Is that the man you think you saw?
3: Yes, sir. Now, you'll notice he's hatless there. Yeah. But he had a hat on. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it's possible that hats do come off, I suppose.
2: Well, they're removable, generally. Yes. Other things are removable, too. This is the way the commission published (laughs) it, though. The commission resolved the whole question as you can see. No, you can't. Oh, yes, you can see now. They just sliced the man in half, and then they enlarged the picture so it would be the same size as the other pictures taken by a retired Air Force Major, Phil Willis. So when they published all 12, you couldn't tell that this one had been cropped and enlarged. You see, compared the two.
3: May I bring out a a point that I think is rather relevant, sir? Sure. At the APME in Coronado, I just happened to attend that also, and uh, Prior to that, my husband and I went in and were immediately caught by Larry Sisk, who was the convention manager and who had been so kind as to permit us to go there. Well, after uh, Mr. Sisk saw us, he said, uh, very nervously, of course, he had a lot on his mind. He had a big convention on his mind, but he said, wait here, wait here. He patted me on the back and that kind of thing. You know, Just wait here. And So I said, all right, you know, I'll wait there. And uh, he went into the restaurant and pretty soon he came out with Mr. Joseph Ball, an attorney for the Warren commis- Commission, and Mr. Uh, liebler. And liebler, of course. Yes. Wesley Liebler. I've. You're heard very that, familiar with him. I've I believe. heard that
2: name. I can't He's place uh, the face. Listen, <laughs> can I interrupt you for a moment, <laughs> Vicki? Before that, and
1: we'll have that confrontation. We have to leave for one second. We'll be right back. Then <laughs> one. Now, now we're back in uh, San Diego, right? with Wesley Liebler and Joseph Ball. And? Okay. You were saying?
3: Yes, sir. And then, uh, Mr. Liebler, uh, was asked by me exactly where Ruby was at that time because I, I still was confused and had never received any satisfaction on this man that I was wondering about. And uh, I said, Mr. Liebler, is it definitely proven that Jack Ruby was in the Dallas Morning News at that time? And I said, because, uh... That's what an officer told me, and that's what it reads in the report and everything. And he said, well, um, uh, uh, now listen, let me show you something. And he reaches into his attache case and he pulls out a series of slides. I can't remember if there were seven on each side, but there were two rows. And he pointed to one slide and he said, "Uh, I understand that you saw a man on the corner there. And I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, would this be the man? And he showed me approximately the same picture that is there. Again, a cropped picture, but not as cropped as the second picture that Mark showed us. It, it showed some of the face, and yet it was still cropped. And he, he tried to explain the cropping somehow. Now, I still can't understand completely what he said. He explained to me that, that the picture had to fit into the frame.
2: There you are. <laughs> and, and I never knew why they did it. It's not Oswald. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it's like Mr. I... Nix who took the, the uh, motion picture films, and I went down to see him in, uh, in his home in Dallas, and he took the film, a very important film of the president being assassinated, almost as important, maybe as important as the film taken by Zapruder and used by the commission. And uh, he showed me the film, and I said, it seems to jump around like there's some frames missing there, Mr. Nix. He said, oh yeah. He said, a few frames got ruined. I'm sorry about that. I said, how that happen? He said, well, I gave it to the FBI. And when it came back, a number of frames were ruined. And uh, he said, I guess it's the processing. So perhaps they had to fit it into the frame also. And
3: uh, I don't know. I never yeah, figured that one out. Know. I'm not too
2: good on that technical stuff about uh, how they have to destroy the Liebler, photographic evidence. Uh,
1: Liebler continued to say in San Diego over and over that uh, he was on the commission itself. He was the devil's
2: advocate.
3: But may I say that uh, Liebler never visited the Texas School Book Depository Building. He told me that.
2: Well, I mean, they, you know, they were, these were busy men, Vicki. Oh, I'm sorry. And, uh, they only had 10 months to get the report out. And limited funds. Limited funds, and...
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well. I think that uh, the uh, Ruby now, uh, is, that, is that as much as we have to say about Ruby? In other words, that it was left there, right? Well, I think no it was very
2: mention? good that, that uh, Mr. Liebler showed you at least the crop photograph. Uh, it would have been nice if the commission showed you the the crop photograph, too, when you appeared before, or maybe even the whole photograph, like the Well, album.
3: they did show me a lot of photographs, I have to admit that. They Not showed, of
2: the man on the corner, though.
3: No, they showed me photographs of chicken bones. There you go And what. Uh, a jacket. And boxes. Yeah. And what
2: were the chicken bones about?
3: Well, it's definitely been established that a colored fellow had chicken bones.
2: Bonnie Ray Williams left some chicken bones on the sixth floor of the book depository building. And this now, what's that got to do with the assassination?
3: Well, it's very relevant. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it may have been a chicken.
2: No <laughs> 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 so evidence to show. indicate that there was when the paraffin test was given to that chicken that uh, <laughs>
3: <laughs> Well, may I bring out the point that uh, Avery Davis, with whom I was at the time and who also saw this gentleman was the never ever look like Ruby right and when
2: you testified before the commission you told them that she was with you yes
3: sir that's in my testimony
2: and did they call her as a witness
3: no sir well
2: mm. you see they, had, they were in
1: a rush they only had 10 months but you have to you have to have faith in them that's what Joseph ball said you've got to have faith look, in if you them. don't that's have all. faith in the commission you know. strong act of faith that's I all. do
3: have faith in them sir you do yes sir I believe in them religiously
2: That's almost the only way to do it. uh,
3: (laughs) I'd like to make another, uh, oh, just possibly something that could be of interest. Now, supposedly, the FBI, the Secret Service, the Dallas Police Department, were all cooperating in this um, venture of discovering who was the true assassin. Uh, a gentleman named Detective Lavelle, who was handcuffed to Oswald when he was being transferred. You might recall him, he was the tall man in the White light suit, suit. And yes, hat, yeah. and, and the light hat. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he came over to my apartment in Dallas oh. one day, and he showed me his credentials, and I looked at him and I said, weren't you the one that was handcuffed to Oswald? And he said, yes, I was. And I said, oh. And I said, well, what do you want? <laughs> because by that time I had been questioned about 40 times. And he said, uh, well, uh, I'd like to know exactly what happened that day. And I said, sir.
2: It's a matter of inquiring mind.
3: (laughs) I said, I have testified to the Dallas police already. I have testified to your special services of the Dallas police already. I have testified to the FBI already. I have testified to the secret service already. Well, you know, you may have left out a detail or two. I said, all right, I'm glad to testify again. You know, it doesn't matter to me, whatever you want. And he, I said, by the way, why? If you have already in your possession two or three copies of what I've said to you. And he said, well, all of the records were lost that we had in our possession. And I said, you mean to tell me that everything that we told you has all been lost? And he said, yep, that's right. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, that's the Dallas police. <laughs>
2: well, after you testified, did uh, did you ever see the uh, typed transcript of your testimony? You mean testified to the Warren Commission? For the commission, yeah.
3: Yes. I uh, waived my signature at the time of the testimony, mm-hmm. which means that I agreed not to sign it, that they could h- go ahead and, and put it into the records as it was. Uh, about a week later, might have been two weeks, I can't recall the exact date, a gentleman from the Warren Commission came to me with my testimony and said, "Miss Adams, we'd like for you to sign this. And I said, what for? I said, I waived my signature. And they said, well, we we want you to sign it. So I was glad to see that they were on the ball and they wanted to get all the details taken care of. So they said, now, before you sign it, will you please read it? I said, I will be glad to read it because I wanted to see what I told them, you know, (laughs) just back check on myself. So I read it. Everything seemed to be in order except for a few things. The first thing was what my position was at my company. I was employed there more or less in customer service, but at the company they called it an office service representative, which makes sense. They had me down as an office survey representative, whatever that means. Secondly, I told them where I'd gone to college, and uh, they they had down there, the court stenographer put down St. Mary's, Ohio. It had been St. Martin, Ohio, which I changed also.
2: You change it on the actual transit. Yes, I circled and, and the first one and also. Changed,
3: and I initialed each page.
2: And you changed office survey to office right,
3: service. Right, right. And then the, the last page was the most impressive one, though. I thought this one was beautiful. When I was talking about the gentleman that I saw on the corner, I said I saw an officious looking man. Now we all know what officious means. And they had put in there, uh, I saw an efficacious looking man.
2: Efficacious looking
3: man. And what's an efficacious <laughs> looking man? I well, don't <laughs> wish to
1: be I'm
2: disputatious, <laughs> Chief <cheaper. laughs>
1: <laughs> but But you're going to use words. Uh, so,
3: may you I... Change may you change that, carry on? On. Yeah, so I ch- I changed that to officious, and, you know, I changed a few typographical errors, wrong <laughs> quotes and that type of thing. And they said now that this would be changed in testimony and all that sort of thing. And I said, by the way, do um, many people make changes? And they said, oh, yeah, quite a few. And I said, well... What kind? And I said, any substantial? And uh, this gentleman, again, I can't recall a name here, said to me, well, a doctor changed about 50% of his testimony. I said, 50%? And I said, well, was it substantial or or what? And he said, well, um, uh, let's say he wanted to appear in a better light. So that was more or less dismissed like that. But I signed my testimony and I was dismissed with that statement. And uh, when it came out in the printed form, it came out as I originally said it and without the corrections.
1: Well, take a break, we'll be right back. That's, uh,
2: now about the detectives. Yeah, where where were you when uh, Oswald was killed?
3: Well, I was, um, I had just, I risen about an hour before, and I switched on the television, and I was watching uh, television at the time, and I saw Oswald be killed on television. And about that time, there was a knock at the door, and I went to the door, and there were two men there, and this was the start of all of the interviews. And these men identified themselves, showed their credentials, and I admitted them and they started asking me what happened and where I was and all that kind of thing. They were very nice. I can honestly say that everybody's been very, very nice. And uh, then they had been there, I think, about an hour. It may have been less than that. I can't recall accurately right now. My sister was watching television in the den during this time instead of listening to us. And she came in and said, uh, Oswald just died. And these two uh, Dallas policemen with the special service looked at each other and they said, well, that about wraps up this case, doesn't it? And I said, you don't want me to say anything else to you? And they said, no, that's it. And I said, all right, whatever you want.
2: The case is closed. That's what the Dallas district attorney was saying at about the same time. Case is closed, Oswald is dead. It was three years ago. It's not closed yet, it's not started yet.
3: Also, it's very interesting that this, um, one of the gentlemen that was there too, told me that that Ruby was very well known to the Dallas police, that he'd give them the shirt off his back and they'd do the same for him any time. This gentleman also told me that he had received little gifts like razor blades and things like that and that, oh, many times Ruby had taken him out to breakfast after the club showed, or closed and that kind of thing. So, you know, it makes you wonder about payoffs it makes you wonder about frames. It makes you wonder about the fact that uh, Ruby got into that little tiny basement in Dallas. I mean, this is a very small area. Yes, yeah, you have that nice.
1: picture, Mark? I showed it after you left town the last time. Showing you in front of that Someplace interest. else, but we can get it by the next was segment. Was it 15 inches wide or something? It's really Well, it's actually... We <laughs> were standing at parade rest there, and I know it's 12 inches. Like it. No, it's really, you know... It's, a, it's nine
2: feet, but it, with two men standing there, Napoleon Daniels, the former police officer, was standing there with Vaughn, the officer on guard, for Ruby to get past those two men. He practically have to say, excuse me. You know, it's a, I mean, you really can't get by without brushing against the person. They were standing in the middle, as they said. They went, uh, Ruby got, walked past unnoticed. Warrant Commission report. Yeah. Unnoticed by the officer on guard. But although the former police officer said Vaughn, who was on guard, looked at Ruby and that he, uh, the former police officer, Daniel saw that Ruby had a, his hand in his pocket with a big bulge in it and it appeared to be a gun in his pocket, he said. He said, he, but he looked at the officer on guard. He said that the officer was, had the responsibility of keeping everybody out, but he looked right at Ruby. He seemed to recognize him, let him go in. So I thought he must know what he was doing.
1: And that's with all of the press of America looking on. Let you know, see they fit to criticize.
2: Not only did they not punish anybody, but you know, Vaughn um, complained that his efficiency rating had been re- reduced by the Dallas Police Force from ninety to eighty-six after the the killing of uh, Oswald. He said that's unfair because the commission never proved that I let Ruby in there, and so he conducted his own investigation, and uh, he told the. Uh, the FBI and when he talked to them that uh, he was satisfied later that uh, he found out that his efficiency was not reduced for letting Ruby in it was reduced for letting Tom Chabot in I don't know the answer to your next question yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see you're happy to know that although he lost four points it had nothing to do with letting Ruby go down there and kill Oswald
1: in other words like, nobody paid for that no
2: well, I mean, if you believe every officer in the Dallas Police Department, Ruby never got in there, because they all said he didn't get past me, and Oswald's still alive.
3: Well, my, my important question on this is the question of timing. When did what happen? Where was Oswald for sure? Was Oswald really on the sixth floor shooting? If he was, when did he come down? How about the people that testified to the fact that Baker and Truly didn't enter the building until three to four minutes afterwards, which is not in the Warren report, but which is in their testimony? Mm -hmm. How about the uh, people who saw the colored fellows when they came down? And how about the witnesses that didn't see anybody coming out of the building from the rear?
2: Who weren't looking?
3: Obviously. And why wasn't everyone's movements timed?
2: Well, almost everybody's was, except yours. And you were the only one who had uh, any testimony to offer which would have upset that which the commission the thesis, said. The, the whole, thesis, the official well, thesis. The official thesis. Well,
3: obviously, I was inaccurate because this is what is in the Warren report.
2: Yes. No, look, if you're accurate, Oswald wasn't at the sixth floor of firing the rifle, and we know he was there. We start with that, right? Right. And work backward. All the evidence shows that, and the evidence that does it is not part of all of the evidence. <laughs> we'll be right back in a second.
1: This photo is uh, is at what instant, Mark? We had this
2: on before, but I yeah. want to establish
1: when. Well, there's the what president in the
2: uh, over here, and he's grasping his throat because the bullet was already struck in the throat, and here's Governor Connolly seated in front of the president, and there's a man who's circled there who's obviously a spectator to the assassination. Yeah. Looks a little bit like Oswald. Yes, but the com- and is dressed as Oswald. Is
1: dressed with a t-shirt and a sports shirt here, when he's apprehended, when he's with the police.
2: But the commission claims that's Lovelady, right? Yes, Billy Nolan Lovelady, who was wearing, he said, a red and white striped sports shirt button near the neck. This doesn't look like that. No. But uh, Vicky knows, or has seen... Uh, what about that? Lovelady and Oswald, right? Is that true? Can you true?
3: tell anything from that? Well, it's amazing that you can see some similarity here, a similarity of the hairline and facial features, but Lovelady, in this picture, if this is Lovelady, he's done a beautiful job of hiding his weight because he's a much meatier man than that, actually. He's much more heavy than this picture indicates. This picture would indicate that he's rather on the slender side. Wouldn't you agree to that? I mean, if you can see it. Oswald well. was slender, right? Yeah. And Love Lady is, is much meatier, which brings up another point, oh. uh, Mark. Uh, Lovelady was asked at the time that he testified before the Warren Commission in, in Washington uh, if he saw me on the first floor. Uh, he and Shelley, I did see them by the elevators.
2: Lovelady testified before a lawyer for the commission.
3: Oh, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's called the
2: commission, but the point is that not a single member of the commission ever saw Billy Lovelady, yeah. although they said that's Lovelady in the picture. Thanks. And, of course, Lovelady was never put there so that a picture could be taken and compared. I but, see. but I'm sorry to interrupt you. When he was right. testifying before the attorney. When
3: he was uh, testifying before the attorney, he was asked whether or not he saw me. And he, you know, he couldn't definitely say yes that he saw me, but he, he said yes, he may have seen me and that kind of thing. And then he said that. Immediately after this he went over to find out what time it was and to find out whether or not they should begin work again But this was never pursued whether or not he found out what time it was This question was never brought up again immediately. Mr. Bell and I believe it was who talked with him Yeah, well, what's the significance Uh, of it? The significance is the time in other words He had just seen me on the first floor.
2: Oh, I see see what time he actually seen you, right?
3: Which would uh, have a significance as far as Oswald too is concerned but he, the question of time, whether or not he found out the time, was never pursued again.
4: Hope you enjoyed listening to Vicki Adams. Wow. She's something else,
0: like Barry always said. You're listening to Black Op Radio. The doubts of the American people. It was all young people, you know, you see it, and it's all hunky-dory. The case is history. The guy was killed by one assassin who was a communist and forgotten. That's really what happened. So you can imagine how I feel and the people around me who are involved in the case, and Jim is one of these people who's done a lot of research, there's a big community of researchers who are serious, they've read everything, they remember everything, and they want to get the case They want to know more. So these people really pushed me to make this documentary. And we got it together uh, a year ago, uh, JFK revisited, and you'll see some of the conclusions that we present that came out of the records that were released. These were released, this is just what was released, but nobody in the media, in the the national media, published anything, they really, they shrugged. They said, well, there's not enough to understand here. It's all very small and very insignificant. Not at all. They make it sound like it's small and insignificant. We've had no cooperation in 60 years from the media. The media, from the beginning, has been complicit in this case. Donc en
5: 2013, suite à ça, évidemment, beaucoup de, historiens, de recherchistes, de spécialistes de la mort de JFK, étaient déçus un peu de la couverture médiatique, donc ils ont poussé Monsieur Stone à revisited to documentary. And they had the chance to have access And this uh,
0: is a problem that we will discuss after the movie when we return. But it's really a problem about the American media. The American media has been on many cases, on many fronts, has been doing this time and again. And this is not a new case, this is an old case. So what we're seeing even now today in the United States is the same old shit.
5: Donc évidemment il est déçu de la <laughs> façon que les médias traditionnels nationaux portent traitent le sujet, parlent du sujet. Donc son documentaire est un petit peu passé dans le bar. Plusieurs des journalistes trouvaient qu'il y avait rien trouvaient qu'il y avait rien de nouveau vraiment à porter.
6: What the review board did, uh, they did declassify hundreds of thousands of pages of documents okay and they worked from 94 to 98 you see in the film we have three people uh from the review board telling us what they did but the problem was the media would not report on any of this stuff because it undermined their previous position of oswald as a lone assassin
5: the problem is effectively, they not posing it
6: took me, Oliver, and Rob Wilson to finally put something together to try to go ahead and get this new information across. You know, why it had to be me, him, and Rob who was the producer. I, you can figure that one out. Right? But we tried to do two things in the film, which I think we succeeded at. All right. We tried to show number one, Kennedy was killed in a crossfire and we prove it in the film that there was a shot from the front. Okay. Which of course couldn't be Oswald. All right. And the second thing we tried to show is that even though Oliver got pummeled over this back in 1991, there's no doubt today, Vietnam would not have happened if Kennedy had lived.
5: Donc les deux choses qui veulent, veulent les montrer dans ce documentaire là, qui vont essayer de, de nous montrer. Donc c'est évidemment pas un tueur, mais vraiment plusieurs tueurs euh, positionnés à plusieurs endroits. dont le Grassino évidemment, pour ceux qui ont, qui ont vu le film JFK et évidemment euh, que la guerre du Vietnam n'aurait pas eu lieu parce qu'évidemment Kennedy on a su qu'il ne voulait pas poursuivre euh, les actions du, euh, de l'armée euh,
6: américaine right. okay. au Vietnam. So. One of the reasons we posit was Kennedy killed because the guys in the military wanted the Vietnam War. We don't say it like that, but we imply that that's obviously a a very good question to ask, all right? Because, just look at it this way. When Kennedy was killed, there was not one combat troop in Vietnam, all right? About a year later, Johnson sent 3,500, About 11 months after that, there were 170,000 combat troops in Vietnam. And American foreign policy, I don't think I have to tell anybody here, okay, has gotten more and more militaristic, okay, after Kennedy King and Bobby Kennedy were all assassinated. It's become a very militaristic country, okay? You know, know, the old old joke we have in the United States is (laughs) an American is a Canadian, without health care, but with a gun. <laughs>
5: okay,
6: okay. The Mexico City report for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which was not declassified until the ARB 350 page report. That report and if you talk to Danny and Eddie, which I have many times, okay, they will tell you Oswald didn't go to Mexico City, okay, and he didn't do those things that the Warren Commission says that he did. You know, it was, it was clearly some kind of imposter. You just ask yourself this question. If, if the CIA had cameras outside of both embassies, which they did, why in 60 years have they never been able to produce one picture of oswald going in or out of either embassy when in fact they should have 10 pictures of oswald doing that why can't they produce a picture and in fact when the arb declassified the mexico city records it has the cia check and it says right on the document no oswald all right Why is there not a tape of Oswald's voice inside either embassy? Okay, there is not, all right? When the CIA sent the tape that was supposed to be Oswald up to Dallas, where Oswald was in detention at that time, being interviewed by the FBI, all right? They listened to the tape. Hoover wrote a memo saying the FBI agents interviewing Oswald say that this guy, whoever the CIA says this guy is, it ain't Oswald, all right? So why have they never been able to produce a tape? Why have they never been able to produce a picture in, in all these years? And Danny and Eddie came to the conclusion, it's because Oswald wasn't there, all right? Which of course leads to the question, why, what was the charade in Mexico City all about? Okay, why did they go through all this okay, in order to make believe Oswald was there? And one solution to that problem is because they wanted to blame the assassination on either the Soviet Union or Cuba. All right, because they wanted to get into an invasion of Cuba. All right. And the problem with that, of course, is that Johnson and Hoover didn't want to go there. All right, this is exactly what we don't wanna happen. And so Johnson brings in Earl Warren and he tells Warren, look, if this gets blamed on the Russians, I got a report from McNamara right here. He's saying there's gonna be 40 million dead in about four hours, okay? And Warren was reduced to tears, you know, by that. All right, now, the problem with that, of course, is that Warren, was so petrified that he literally didn't want to do anything. At the first meeting, he didn't want to call any witnesses. He was thoroughly cowed by that. You know, and so that was, if if the CIA, if they're that smart, okay, then they had the right result with the whole Mexico City, Toronto. I'm glad you asked that. Thank you.
0: (laughs) You're listening to Black Op Radio.
4: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Block Op Radio. This is your host, Len Osanic. We're speaking to producer, researcher, author, Jim Eugenio. Hello, Jim. Good evening, Len. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for taking time out tonight.
6: My, It's my pleasure. Good. I, Good. I'm doing this, by the way, I'm doing this, um, I'm only going to give like a mini segment here uh, because the, the big thing that, is that you have tonight is, of course, Rich Negrette um somehow miraculously discovered a tape from November of 1966 of Mark Lane and Victoria Adams on the Mort Saul show
4: It's unbelievable okay. really think wow. so that
6: that is you know because I have never heard Victoria Adams do any live interview okay I I I didn't even think that existed okay but through, and and Rich Rich Negret talks about how he found this, okay, at the end of the tape. Okay, so I don't want to spoil all that. But it was kind of almost like a by well, it was by an accident that he found it.
4: Yeah, serendipitous, okay? you know, just good luck, good timing.
6: Right. Know. So you know, so that's that's gonna be the big story on your show tonight. All right. But I just wanted to go ahead and acknowledge the death of what is probably the worst journalist ever to write on the JFK case, and that's Hugh Wainsworth, who passed away a few days ago, I think on December the 23rd. And I'm not gonna shed any tears about Hugh Wainsworth's death because uh, if there's somebody who didn't deserve it, it was such lamentation, it was uh, Hugh Wainsworth. As they said, the late, unlamented, Hugh Hugh Ainsworth, probably, I can't think of any single person offhand in the journalism field, okay, who was quite as bad as Hugh was for as long as he was. And it started off right at the top, okay, Hugh Ainsworth once said that he was in Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination. Look, I would... Give my eyes, tooth, to anybody to produce a picture of Hugh Wainsworth in Dealey Plaza. Okay, uh, Bob Groden probably has the best collection of photographs. All right, on that subject, I never heard him say this. He was also supposed to have been at Tent and Payton, where Tippett was shot. I've never heard anybody say that they saw Hugh Ainsworth at that scene, and I never heard anybody say that they've been interviewed by Hunes, Hugh Ainsworth, any of the type of witnesses. He was also at the Texas Theater where Oswald was arrested. Again, I've never seen, there's a lot of pictures of Oswald coming out of that theater, and I've never seen any film or photo that attests to the fact that he was there. And I don't have to say this, but the audience can figure it out, that he was also supposed to be in the basement out of Dallas Police Headquarters when Oswald was killed by Jack Ruby, all right? So here's a guy who was supposedly every single place at the precise moment when he had to be there that weekend, all right? Well, whether or not Hugh was at these places or not, he decided to make the JFK assassination he was a reporter for the Dallas Morning News at the time, his ballywick. There's no doubt about that. And he decided to make it his ballywick by backing up the people in the Dallas Police Department and Henry Wade. The D.A. Okay, in the summer of 1964, he got a friend of his named Holmes Alexander to write a column saying that there's some doubt as to where the Warren Commission is going to come out on this Kennedy assassination. They better come out on the right side, which means Oswald was a homicidal maniac or he was ready to, to reveal that the FBI knew Oswald was a potential assassin and blew their assignment. According to Holmes Alexander, Ainsworth had also talked to Marina Oswald, and she told him that Oswald had also threatened to kill Richard Nixon. Now, that to me sounds exactly the opposite of what it's supposed to be. In all likelihood, I wouldn't be surprised if Hugh Ainsworth fed her that information to add on to the whole profile of Oswald being a political assassin. Um, He wants the portrait to be a hard-driven, political, radical leftist and Oswald be shown to be a homicidal maniac. That's what Hugh Ainsworth says is the correct verdict. Now, this is the closing of this column. Remember, this is the summer of 1964, July. If The Warren Commission report jives with Ainsworth's independent research. Credibility will be added to its findings. If it does not, there will be some explaining to do. That's how the column closes. Now, clearly, Ainsworth had a lot to do with this column, and he's bent on destroying the credibility of the Warren Commission if it does not agree with his take. Now, the whole thing about marina and lee and nixon was so crazy that not even the Warren commission bought into that for example peter scott said he wrote that if we're to take this at face value marina had to have locked oswald in the bathroom to keep him from committing this homicide the problem is the bathroom locked from the inside okay very serious problem with that story all right nixon was not in dallas Until several months after the alleged incident, there was no announcement ever found in any local newspaper that Nixon was going to Dallas at this time period, which is April 1963. So how did Oswald know that Nixon was going to be there, which he wasn't, by the way? All right. uh, And by the way, Ainsworth, and this is going to be in my obituary, which I'm working on right now for Hugh Ainsworth. He bragged to his friends that he was actually sleeping with Marina. Now, he also was
4: in... You know, I hate to ask,
6: why would somebody brag? Yeah, What's <laughs> that's a that? really good question, isn't it? Oh, that's a really good question. He was also in on the theft of the so-called Oswald Historic Diary. From the FBI report I read, and it's a pretty long report, it's about 70 pages long, Kim <laughs> and the assistant to Bill Alexander okay, cooperated on this, okay, I think it was Alexander who probably got it out of the evidence room, gave it to his buddy Hugh Ainsworth, and then Ainsworth printed it in in the Dallas Morning News, and then he sold it to U.S. News and World Report, and then there were other magazines, like Life Magazine, that also printed it. So in other words, Ainsworth and Alexander, and also I think his wife, Ainsworth's wife, Paula, they split thousands of dollars, okay? Marina was cut out of it at the beginning. Ainsworth was ready to give her nothing, but Life Magazine ended up giving her a few shekels for it. But but he also gave it to Newsweek with the understanding that he would become their bureau chief in Dallas, which is exactly what happened. He became their guy, in Dallas and the Newsweek bureau chief in Dallas. Now, if you can believe it, the Dallas Morning News even let him review books about the Kennedy case. I mean, that's that's just crazy to have a nut like Ainsworth review books on the Kennedy case. He did a review of Oswald Assassin or Fall Guy, Joachim Justine's early book, which was I think in the fall of 1964. And I've read that review Not a review at all, okay? It's really just Ainsworth piling on and smearing the character of Joe Stone, all right? And ridiculing the idea that, which, to his credit, Joachim Joe actually uh, proffered this early, that Oswald was some kind of undercover agent for the FBI or the CIA. Now, when this rumor came out, Ainsworth ridiculed it, saying, That this was something that him and Alexander made up, okay, and that somebody fell for it. This is how determined Ainsworth was to distract from the idea that Oswald was some kind of intel agent, which of course he was, okay? But that's the kind of journalist that Hugh Ainsworth was. He would make up stuff in order to go ahead and distract people from what the true facts of the case were. And I have to say that Jostin's book, if you look at it today, is not a bad book at all, considering the time time it was actually written. Now, he also, I don't know how he did this, but I think he was friends with Holland McCombs. Holland McCombs was a big managing editor at Life magazine who supervised their reinvestigation of the Kennedy case. All right. And that included Tink Thompson, Ed Kern, I think uh, Patsy Swank, and Richard Billings. I might be missing one person there, all right? But his life was doing this, I don't know how Ainsworth got in on the action, but he did. It might have been through Holland McCombs. So he began to alert the FBI of what what this team was digging up. Now, like for instance, they had come up with a person – that connected Ruby and Oswald. And so he made a report to the FBI about that. Now, it turned out that what happened was that McCombs was a very good friend of Clay Shaw's, all right? And when they began to get close to New Orleans in this, I think the spring of 1967, late 1966, McCombs decided to fire, well, whatever you wanna call it, relieve them of their duties. Tink Thompson and Ed Kern. Now, what makes that so interesting is that those were the two guys doing the best work on their reinvestigation. But Ainsworth went ahead, he went even further, and he told the bureau that, get this, Mark Lane was a homosexual, and he had to drop his political career because of these allegations. I would think the last thing that Mark Lane would be was a homosexual. But anyway, at the end of the interview, and this is what I love about these guys, Ainsworth requested that his identity not be disclosed outside the Bureau. So when you're a fink, you don't want anybody else to know you're a fink. That's the kind of guy Hugh Ainsworth was. Now, there's some people like Seymour Hersh who makes no bones about talking to CIA agents, like, for instance, Sam Halpern in his book. Okay, you know, but people like, Ainsworth, who really is not an investigative reporter at all, he's just a mouthpiece, you know, they want their identities kept secret. Now, what happens next is that when the news broke about Garrison's investigation, Garrison actually granted Ainsworth an interview at his house. After the interview, and this is the first interview Ainsworth ever had with Garrison, Ainsworth wrote a note to Holland McCombs, that should, listen to this. They should not let the di the DA know that they were playing both sides. I love that, that they were playing both sides. In other words, he was playing Garrison because he was going to go ahead and use all this information he got to blast away at him. But they can't let Garrison know that at that time. And so Ainsworth, along with his friends, Walter Sheridan and James Phelan, then Began to do everything they could to both smear Garrison in the press, to obstruct him by cooperating with law enforcement agencies, and to defeat him in court. And Ainsworth was actually working for Clay Shaw's lawyers. All right, there's no, there's no doubt about that. Ainsworth tried to bribe the one of the witnesses up in Clinton Jackson, John Manchester, with the promise of a job with the CIA that would pay him 40, 000, around $40,000 a year. Now, I don't have to tell you how much $40,000 a year would be today. I bet you it'd be over 300 grand. So that's a pretty good job. But here's my question. How did Ainsworth know he could secure Manchester a job with the CIA unless he had already cleared that offer in advance? That's a great question. I don't know the answer. And since Hugh's dead, we're never gonna know. But anyway, Manchester essentially ran Ainsworth out of town by saying that if he didn't get out of Clinton Jackson, he would he would cut him a new butthole. All right, and so that was it. Now, here's the question How did Ainsworth know about the Clinton Jackson witnesses? Those were not there's not a lot of public uh, public exposure of those people, and the answer to that question is that he had a plant inside Garrison's office, okay? It was probably Bill Gervish. and that's how he got the files on those witnesses, and I can guarantee you this. Ainsworth was so plugged into the FBI and the Secret Service that he would be able to get these investigative files from inside Garrison's inquiry, and he would go ahead and either contact the witnesses himself or feed them to the FBI or CIA, all right, before Garrison got to them. That's the important thing, okay? Um, There was a friend of Ferry's. I think his name was Bermudas. okay? Oh, no, Bosnetto, okay? His name was Bosnetto. He used to fly with David Ferry. He was living in Denver when I got in contact with him. And I called him up. And I said, were you interviewed by Jim Garrison? And he said, yeah. And I said, did anybody get to you before Garrison? Because yeah. Two guys in suits came to my apartment and wanted to talk to me. Now, How would these guys know about this guy, Julian Bosnetto? He was very, very little known about him at the time, okay? I believe that that's what happened, is that Ainsworth got the files out of Garrison's office, all right, and then fed them to the FBI or the CIA or the Secret Service, or else he would go visit the witnesses himself, all right, and... We didn't really know that much about this until the ARB declassified the FBI and CI files on this subject. No reporter that I know of ever interfered with the DA's workings to the extent that Hugh Wainsworth did, all right? Uh, I don't think anybody would even say it's even close, all right? Now... The idea is that the whole thing, of course, was to manufacture this phony scandal around Garrison's inquiry in order to distract from the discoveries, the powerful discoveries that Garrison was actually make them, making, okay, and that was to create a scandal, like for instance, Amesworth's first published article in Newsweek about Garrison was simply a piece of libel. Okay, it said that he was terrorizing the people of New Orleans, that he really didn't have any kind of a case, that he was uh, he marked he was marked by unchecked power, etc. It was nothing but a hatchet job, they had no basis in reality. But he sent that to the White House and the FBI in advance. Now, many years later, I think it was in 93, Ainsworth conducted a seminar in Dallas to compete with the so-called Ask Symposium, okay, which was going on at the same time. Uh, And someone asked him, they said, have you ever submitted any of your articles to the FBI in advance for their approval before they were published? And of course, Ainsworth said no. Well, he had the first edition of my book, Destiny Betrayed, and I printed that right in the book. And so he read it off right in front of you. Okay. Now, now not only that, though, but he actually volunteered – to work for the CIA, he went to their office in Dallas and uh, said he wanted to go to Cuba. All right, and uh, he essentially said, "Is there anything you need me to do down there?" Okay, uh, and that's been exposed. Also, that will be in my obituary for uh, for Hugh. Okay, but. And he tried to, when somebody, I think Robert Morrow asked him about this, he tried to explain it all away innocently, okay, uh, you know, that I was just trying to, you know, see if I could help a little bit, you know, that kind of thing. I wasn't really doing anything. Help
4: a little bit? <laughs> but
6: what's so odd about this, I think this was on the eve of the, of the missile crisis. It was somewhere around there. I'll get the actual details down later.
4: OK. Um, well, I hate to tell you, but I think so little of him, I don't even want to hear the details.
6: <laughs> well, the thing is, only in Dallas could you have an award named after Hugh Ainsworth in journalism. I mean, and they do, if you can believe it. All right. In 1979 on KERA TV, Hugh said, quote, I'm not saying there wasn't a conspiracy, I know most people in the country believe there was a conspiracy. I just refuse to accept it, and that is my life's work. Now, how could anybody trust this guy on the JFK case when he's essentially saying that the facts of the case don't matter to him? Okay. All right. And it doesn't matter to him who really killed JFK. All right. But Gus Russo put him on the Peter Jennings special in 2003, if you, if you recall that. You know, Gus Russo and Dale Myers worked on that, and they put him on uh, the Jennings ABC special in 2003. All right. Um, and so, the, so this is a beginning that uh, I'm going to go ahead and deal with even longer uh, in my obituary for Hugh. Okay, because I think it's important uh, to memorialize as much information we can get about this guy, Uh, because the idea that he's some kind of uh, guy that we need to look up to, uh, which is essentially what the Dallas Morning News thinks of him, is something that has to be countered very strongly now that he's passed on. I don't think any attempt to memorialize this guy is going to succeed.
4: Sorry, I got one word to to sum them up. I'd say prostitute. What? (laughs) Prestitute. That's the word I think Oh,
6: no, that's the right word to describe them. There's no doubt about it. There's a couple of other articles at Kennedy's and King that are new that I'll talk about later. But I think your listeners should uh, take a look at one by Gary Aguilar and, and Cyril Wecht, Nicholas Nally and the JFK case part two. Nick Nally is their new technical expert on the JFK case, and Gary and Cyril go after him again. They already did it once, but they're going to do it again in this article, which is a pretty good article. And then Counterpunch was at work over the 60th anniversary. They ran two articles smearing Kennedy on civil rights, Indochina, and the economy. And I decided I decided to reply to that one. Good. Title that one is Counterpunch Is At It Again. And so so that's a little bulletin, a little bit of an update, okay, of what's I got another
4: word for them. Counterpunch drunk.
6: (laughs) So that's a little bit of a uh, of a bulletin about what's going to be going on at Kennedys and King. And uh, we're working on some very interesting guests for Lynn's show. We'll leave that at that. Okay. But I think you're going to be quite yeah, In the new year. Yeah.
4: Right. I All right, Len. The, yeah. The last week of uh, 2023. So we got a new year and we're looking forward. There's a lot of things that are uh, irons that are in the fire. Yeah, as you say, guests yeah. and specials so here, and things. So
6: here we are at the end of 2023, which was the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy, and guess what? We're still not done.
4: Well, they're still fighting to hold the records. They're still keeping people like Julian Assange in prison, and uh, Ed Snowden. So you know we've no, got.
6: No, Ed Snowden's in Russia.
4: No, I know that, but I mean, you know, he's not welcome. He'll be he'd be arrested in in the same solitary I, cell if he came back to America. Right. Did you hear that? Fucking idiot, Lindsey Graham today. Oh, my God. He was saying something. Oh, we should start bombing Iran right now. We that's like Bombing Iran? Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I can't believe that the American people are just sit back and let these psychopaths, uh, you know?
6: Oh, let, let me say something about that. I didn't plan on saying this, but I resigned from Consortium News a couple of weeks ago over a uh, professional dispute with them and – I decided to open up my own Substack site, which, by the way, it's it's for free right now. OK, I'm not charging for it. And I have about five articles up there. And it's gotten a, a really good response. I'm, I'm, I'm very surprised because I don't consider myself to have a, a really big name in the journalistic field. But this last article I wrote on Substack, I titled Gaza and JFK. And this got an enormous response. It got 157 people opened it in one night, okay? And again, I'm not really pushing Substack, and I haven't really advertised it very much. And I said I don't have a big name. But this essentially, I took it from my Pittsburgh talk at the WEC conference at the 60th, all right? And it's about what's going on in the Middle East right now. And how different things would have been if Kennedy had lived. And I have very little doubt about that. Okay. And, and so I use some people that most people don't use, like, you know, Philip Muhlenbeck, his book, Betting on the Africans, and Robert Rocove Kennedy Johnson, and the uh, non aligned world, and a little bit from Monica Wiesack. All right. And so, If you want to see a really different take on this, okay, to show what things might have been if Kennedy had lived, you know, uh, take a look at it at my Substack site and you'll learn about Kennedy's relationship and his hopes with Gamal Abdel Nasser, which I think was the key Kennedy saw as the key to having a peace in the Middle East, all right? Now, there's also some other articles there Okay, that you might be interested in. Um, I did a, um, um, a, a a review of *Killers of the Flower Moon*. Okay, I did a um, an article about the death of Henry Kissinger. Okay, I did an article about. This is what this art one I'm going to talk about next. This is what I was going to do for Consortium News before I resigned for the 60th. It was the Kennedy's great Algeria speech. And I wrote about that in, in for this Substack site. And then I interviewed a guy who saw the Zapruder film um, before it was broadcast and also saw a film of the Malcolm X killing, okay, when he was training in Washington. He was being trained by the Secret Service. So anyway, if you want to take a look at that, okay that's all in my sub and my sub stack good so. we'll make a link right. to that then okay thanks for thanks so much yeah. man.
4: so look at happy new year to you we'll talk it next year and um best wishes from my family to yours same to yours bye bye right. okay good night good night everyone